Well, hello. First of all, I'm so pleased you've joined us. It's a pleasure to have your company once again on Search for Truth. Today, our Bible teacher, Brian Johnston, brings us part five in our six-week series called Keepers of the Threshold. As usual, it's about another of the Keepers of the Threshold's responsibilities. And this time, it's the responsibility for auditing the utensils. What Bible lessons from this portion have we this time, Brian? Well, John, as usual, we do have a lesson, a contemporary lesson to learn, and I think it's a very relevant one, as we'll draw it today from our continuing series on Threshold Keepers. But let me just say, if you're just joining us, and you're not at all sure who or what the Keepers of the Threshold were, let me take you straight away to our main Bible text. It's found in First Chronicles chapter 9. Now, the gatekeepers were Shalom and Akub and Talmon and Ahiman and their relatives, Shalom, the chief, being stationed until now at the king's gate to the east. These were the gatekeepers for the camp of the sons of Levi. Shalom, the son of Koreh, the son of Ebiasaph, the son of Korah, and his relatives of his father's house, the Korahites, were over the work of the service, keepers of the thresholds of the tent, and their fathers had been over the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, was ruler over them previously, and the Lord was with him. Zechariah, the son of Meshelemiah, was gatekeeper of the entrance of the tent of meeting. All these who were chosen to be gatekeepers at the thresholds were 212. These were enrolled by genealogy in their villages, whom David and Samuel the seer appointed in their office of trust. So they and their sons had charge of the gates of the house of the Lord, even the house of the tent, as guards. The gatekeepers were on the four sides, to the east, west, north and south. Their relatives in the villages were to come in every seven days from time to time to be with them. For the four chief gatekeepers, who were Levites, were in an office of trust and were over the chambers and over the treasuries in the house of God. They spent the night around the house of God because the watch was committed to them and they were in charge of opening it morning by morning. Now some of them had charge of the utensils of service, for they counted them when they brought them in and when they took them out. Some of them also were appointed over the furniture and over all the utensils of the sanctuary. You know, it's as if we are uncovering the duties of these keepers of the threshold one line at a time. In addition to being the guards of the temple entrances and the supervising stewards of its collections from the people and its night watchmen, and responsible for admitting into its precincts those who had a right to be there, they also kept an inventory of the temple utensils, that is, of the equipment used in the various services of the temple. They controlled or audited the inventory of all the utensils. They counted each item that was signed out, and they counted them when they were signed back in. It reminds me of the journey which Ezra records in the Bible book which bears his name. He was leading at that time another wave of returning Israelites coming back from the territories of the old Persian Empire to help take forward the restoration of temple service at Jerusalem again. This was after a period of captivity where there had been for 70 years no temple or house for God at Jerusalem. At that time, as Ezra prepared for his journey, we read of him counting out valuable donated items into the hands of trusted priests. Later, after they transported them, Ezra also counted them in at Jerusalem at the end of the journey. What was counted out was also counted in. The entire inventory was all checked. Ezra was ensuring there was nothing missing, nothing unaccounted for. 
There was to be no grounds for any finger of suspicion. The operation of God's house demands complete discretion and integrity. Those who function there serve the Lord God. And it was the same routinely at Jerusalem, under the controlling eyes of the keepers of the threshold. They were responsible for ensuring nothing went missing or was mislaid. In God's purpose, there's a spiritual counterpart today to the temple at Jerusalem in the time of the Old Testament. For the New Testament similarly describes faithful believers who are built up in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 to be a spiritual house for God, a holy priesthood responsible for offering to God in worship, worship that's acceptable to him, acceptable spiritual sacrifices of praise and glory to his name. As we see from any reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17, this house also is capable of being destroyed just as its Old Testament physical counterpart was. Corrupt teaching, teaching which departs from the biblical standard of the apostles' teaching, once led to its destruction about 1900 years ago after the time of the apostles. So, we must carefully distinguish this New Testament temple from the church which is Christ's body. Christ's church, which he first announced in Matthew chapter 16, cannot be destroyed, nor can it even be affected by sin. Christ's church is never once referred to in the New Testament as a temple or sanctuary. Now, although we said God's temple on earth, by contrast, can be destroyed, and indeed it was early on in the church age, Yet it remains a biblical possibility that there can be once again, through human obedience, such a thing as a temple for God on earth if care is taken. Yes, care needs to be taken in the accurate handling of scripture and the proper use of spiritual gift, exactly as care had to be taken in the days of the designated keepers of the threshold. Those men were studying, who were entrusted with handling such details as the preserving of the temple inventory of equipment and accounting for its whereabouts. Without these items, there could hardly be any service for God. And as we now translate that physical picture of the Old Testament into its spiritual New Testament counterparts, we at once notice that God's service still requires equipping, so that it may function according to God's specified design. Ephesians chapter 4 says, And he gave some as apostles, that's the ascended Christ, he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ." Now, perhaps you'll say to me that this is talking about corporate growth in the body of Christ. And did I not earlier make a distinction between Christ's body and God's temple today? I did, and I stand by that. We need to reread this section of Ephesians 4 more closely, perhaps. If you do that later, you should be able to see that the gifts 
which the ascended Christ has given to the body are designed to equip each believer for serving the Lord. And the yardstick for the effective use of these gifts is to measure their results over against the goal which is here set out as being that of a visible unity of Christian disciples. You see, God's ongoing intention in equipping us with spiritual gifts is to see materialising again today the very same unity which first occurred in the historic New Testament churches of God described in the book of Acts. Individual Christians back then were not isolated, independent, individualistic or competitive, but they were added together, built up, fitted together in a community where all believed and practised the same apostles' teaching, which visibly united them across large geographical areas in the early fellowship of the churches of God. They were ruled by a fellowship of elders represented in every church location. As this section of Ephesians 4 plainly announces, it's vital that Christian believers talk to each other today and talk doctrinally and talk lovingly if there's to be any improvement on the sad situation where we do find practically every wind of doctrine and indeed so many believers who are all at sea doctrinally. That's not the mature picture which God calls for here. Hasn't something gone wrong with us at the human level of our equipping of each other? For we're clearly not achieving God's desire for a visible unity, a unity which expresses the underlying mystical union of the church, the body. And that's how the two things, the temple and the body, although different, that's how they're related. The only fitting testimony to the union of all believers in Christ is biblical and doctrinal unity among practising disciples on earth, as in the early churches of God. God's plan hasn't changed. But, we have to ask, how have we handled the utensils at our disposal? How have we used the gifts given to us? The Apostle Paul develops the picture in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 when he says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The gifts must operate under the guidance and direction of the inspired scriptures. Only this will ensure we are properly equipped. Then perhaps... There's a sense that Paul takes it a little further. It's true he's already spoken, as we've seen, of gifted people equipping others. In 2 Timothy, he goes the whole way of seeing believers as actually being the vessels or utensils in God's service. This is what 2 Timothy 2 and 20 says. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honour and some to dishonour. Therefore, If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honour, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. We may need to be more grateful than we presently realise to modern-day keepers of the threshold, as it were. In other words, those who use their gifts to so equip us for adequacy under God in our service, so that when the master returns for the ultimate audit of the vessels of his house, he'll find us present and correct, having made a modest contribution, but one recognisably useful to him within the overall advancement of his plans in the here and now.
Romans chapter 6 and verse 13 says, Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. As usual, I'd like to remind you about the free transcript booklet for this series. If you'd like one or more, be sure to let us have your postal address and ask for the title Keepers of the Threshold. There's now a variety of ways in which you can digest further studies which we present here on air. So each week I'll be reminding you of a different method to use. But first, here's our postal and our email address. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester LE5 6LN UK. I'll repeat that. Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester LE5 6LN UK. And now here's our email address sft at churchesofgod.info. One of the ways you can listen again is by audio podcast. And uh, you use your computer and you go to www.searchfortruth.podbean.com and you can browse the list of previous talks which you'll see has been categorised to assist you to find uh, what you're looking for. So, it's been great to have you with us. I hope you enjoyed the programme. And next week we have the final talk in this series, God willing, yet another of the Keepers of the Threshold's tasks, which is preparing the perfume. I hope you can join us. But until then, it's our very best wishes from Brian, David and me, John. So goodbye and may God richly bless you. (laughs) 